Lord, we praise you for this morning. Every moment of it is an opportunity for worship. And it's easy for me to stand here and preach it without worshiping, and it's easy for those who listen to tune out and not worship. I pray, Father, that we would strive today to cultivate a heart of worship for our God as we discover afresh who he is and what he's like and what he does for us and to us. Oh, Father, we praise you and we long to be on our faces before you on the last day when our justification will be realized in full. And so we say, Maranatha, Lord, come soon come. Lord, these things we pray for the glory of our Savior. Amen. Amen. Well, many of you know that in the Kirk family, um, we love the outdoors. When Chris and I were dating, we would walk the trails of Tennessee, the, the kind of the foothills there near Chattanooga. When we started having children, we brought them along on the hike, hikes, uh, sometimes stuffing them in bags and However, we needed to just to uh, just to be out in the wilderness and get used get our kids used to being out there because we loved it so much. When the kids became te teenagers, I revived my early passion for rock climbing and and uh, taught my older children how to use all the equipment. We bought the equipment and used the equipment and got hurt by the equipment and <laughs> and that was just all part of the fun. And over the years, we we found ourselves after that picking up backpacking, and we trekked everywhere. We trekked in the backwoods of Yosemite and Sequoia and Zion and other national parks. Most recently, just about a month ago, in fact, I, I found myself joining um, five of my grown children as they backpacked through a small sliver, kind of a, a narrow section of Glacier National Park. I say uh, a narrow sliver. Anywhere you go is a narrow sliver there. The trails are narrow and the park is so enormous that it's just breathtaking. And I remember the first leg of the trip uh, was only six miles long. The second leg of the trip was a little bit shorter than that. But then after that, the third trek really was a grueling 12-mile excursion ascending vertically some 2,000 feet above our base, our camp, where we spent the night. And it was on an, a narrow, winding trail that, frankly, I thought would never end. I can tell you that while my kids completed that leg of the hike with moderate difficulty, I completed the hike by grace alone. <laughs> and the fact that several of my children pulled things out of my pack so I could actually make it. And frankly, I find it quite impossible to adequately describe what the trail was like that day. To say it was long and steep and sometimes dangerous just doesn't seem to do justice. On occasion, we had to stop and rest. There were times when there were uh, horse, kind of mule teams, mainly horses, uh, with workers trying to share the same trail with us, a little bit harrowing. We had to eat. We had to uh, bandage up our blisters and whatever else. We had to refuel. It took hours to make it to the summit, but as every backpacker can testify, the view from the summit 
is always, it always makes all of the work worthwhile. And this morning I realized that for the past several weeks we have been trekking through the foothills, as it were, up the steep and sometimes grueling slopes of the bad news of the gospel. And, uh, you know, all I got to say about our people here, having gone through that together, you must be believers to make it through all of that teaching on the judgment of God. And you keep coming back and keep coming back and keep encouraging me. It's just wonderful. It says something about the heart of this church that God has put here. We praise him for that. The first part of our theological climb or textual climb leads to... Uh, really leaves leads a, a lot to be desired. That first section on the, um, the condemnation and the judgment of God. Frankly, it's foreboding. It's dangerous. It's difficult. We don't like hearing. There's something inside that, is, that bothers us. And rightfully so. It should bother us. When we hear week after week about the depravity of man and his inherent godlessness and wickedness, and we're, and we're drawing it right out of the text, nobody enjoys that. The trail is cluttered with warning signs about death and condemnation. Frankly, it's not a sunny saunter through a park. We would much prefer to stroll the gentle hills of Philippians or to splash around in the cool waters of the Psalms. But if we want to encounter the breathtaking panorama of God's great salvation, if we want to discover the rich treasures of God's eternal life, we simply must endure the dark and difficult climb through the teaching of God's judgment on sinners. And that's what you and I have been doing over the past several weeks. It is my joy this morning, however, to inform you that that long part of the trek through the dark doctrine of divine judgment and condemnation has finally come to an end. Oh, Paul will mention it again as along, along the way, but it won't be the name of the trail we're on anymore. This morning, we get to kind of lay our packs down, as it were, and and begin taking in the glory of the majestic beauty that lies before us in the doctrine of justification by faith alone. And Paul's transition from condemnation to justification is just not, it's not stylistic on my part. It's actually in the text. And look with me just for a moment. We're, we're not ready to read the whole text yet, but just look at verse 21. And follow along with me as I read. You ready for this? But now, end. That's what I want you to see. But now, this is a transition. This is a big transition. But now. now think about it. Back then, in the previous two and a half chapters, God warned us of certain impending wrath. Back then, he revealed man's propensity to suppress God's truth and unrighteousness. Back then, he unmasked the idolatry of our hearts. Back then, he exposed our hatred of God's law. Back then, he demonstrated our inability to keep God's law. Back then, we found ourselves condemned by the demands of God's law. But now, but now, now 
Listen carefully. Now the righteousness of God has been made manifest apart from the law. For all who believe. Now sinners are justified by his grace as a gift. Now our sins are paid for through the propitiation of his son. Now we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Over the next few weeks, my ambition is to lead you into a rich study. I hope it's a rich study for all of us of justification by faith alone. Sola fide, the reformers called it. And if you're new to Christianity or perhaps new to Calvary Bible Church, you may be asking, what do you mean when you speak about justification? What is justification? And that's a great question. Thank you for asking. <laughs> the term justification simply means to declare righteous. And we'll talk about this more in the weeks ahead, but more specifically, justification is an act of God as judge. It's an act of God, the judge of all the earth, by which he pronounces a condemned sinner righteous by faith in Jesus Christ. That's, in a nutshell, what justification is about. As one author put it, the man who believes in Christ, sinful though he may be, is viewed by God as being righteous because in Christ he has come into a righteous relationship with God. Or he has come into, by God's grace, a right relationship with God. R.C. Sproul says, The doctrine of justification by faith alone is the central affirmation of historic evangelicalism. Martin Luther said, The doctrine of justification is the pillar upon which the church stands or falls. Elsewhere, Martin Luther also said, he referred to justification by faith alone as the principal article of the Christian doctrine. This is central. And line up all the doctrines in the, the New Testament. This one towers over almost all the others. Beloved, this is one of the most precious jewels one can ever discover in the Bible. And so we would do well to study it believe it and own it for ourselves. But before we dive into the doctrine of justification, it seems to me that the text before us also reveals something, some things that, that we should know about the God who justifies. The doctrine of justification is wonderful. It's enormously wonderful. It's beyond beyond our ability to put into words how glorious it is. I don't think we will fully grasp it until we see Jesus face to face. The doctrine of justification is wonderful, but it's, but it's only wonderful because it's an expression of the very heart of God. What kind of God would love a world of rebellious sinners by saving them, not by works, not by earning it, but by the substitutionary death of his one and only son. What kind of God would do that? Well, as we wade into the text before us this morning, we will, 
discover that the God of our salvation is a holy God. I shouldn't say it like that, actually. That sounded too trite. Let me take another run on, a run on that. Who is this God? He is holy God. Let all the earth be silent before him. He's a holy God. Secondly, he's a faithful God. Third, he is a righteous God. This is all about righteousness. Justification is. He is a glorious God. He is a gracious God. He is a forbearing God. And finally, he is a just God. So let's begin our study by reading this text. Uh, in honor of God's word, why don't you stand with me and follow along as I read. I'm reading out of the ESV. And we will be camped out on this text for at least the next three weeks. Maybe longer. Romans 3, 21 through 26. But now, but now, the righteousness of God has been manifest apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness of it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, for there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading of his word, and you can be seated. In his book, the knowledge of the holy. A.W. Tozer, it's the second or third time we've quoted from him this week. He famously said these words. What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. Can I say that again? What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. Worship is pure or base as the worshiper entertains high or low thoughts of God. For this reason, the gravest question before the church is always God himself. And the more portentous and the most portentous fact about any man is not what he at a given moment may say or do, but what he in his deep heart conceives God to be like. We tend to be, we tend to, to by a, a secret law of the soul, we tend to move toward our mental image of God. This is true not only of individual Christians, but of the company of Christians that composes the church. Always, the most revealing thing 
about the church is her idea of God, just as her most significant message is what she says about him or leaves unsaid, for her silence is often more eloquent than her speech. As a pastor who's also a biblical counselor, I can assure you that A.W. Tozer is right. Many people who apply for a seat in our counseling center have a wrong view of God, and, and that's the problem. And I suspect that in a crowd this size this morning, there are probably dear friends among us who have unbiblical and therefore incorrect ideas about God. You heard them from Oprah, or you heard them from your favorite Christian band, or you heard it from some blog post but you didn't get it from God. And if you have correct ideas about God, it will be impossible to fully grasp the glory of the gospel. If we miss it, we will not understand the gospel. Let me say it differently. If we don't know God, we cannot know his gospel. We can't understand it. It won't make sense. It'll make logical sense. But... It won't be a sense in your heart that is settled and rock solid and weighty. The doctrine of justification by faith alone is anchored to the God who justifies. And so we, before we begin studying the rich doctrine of justification, I, I, think it would be, I think it would be both wonderful and necessary to take some time to talk about the God who justifies. Now, I'll tell you up front, and, and most of you won't even care about this, uh, and that's fine. This is going to be more of a devotional sermon than it is a strict um, exposition. In fact, I'm not going to exegete the text. What caught my eye in the text as I was studying it to do an exposition is how many different attributes of God are laid before us, either overtly or subtly. And I can tell you that my study this week of the person of God, the attributes of God, has helped me enormously, has been refreshment to my soul, and I pray it will be for you as well. So let's, let's look at this. Who is this God? Who is this God who justifies? Well, first of all, he is a holy God. He is a holy God. And I, I should take the indefinite article out of that. He is not a holy God. He is the holy. The first attribute of God is not explicitly stated here, as it is in other texts. But it is powerfully implied through chapters 1, and, one through 3. The Hebrew word for holy means to separate or to cut who, would, who knew, right? Well, those of you who are in men's ministry probably know, and a few others. It means to cut. And when we think of God's holiness, we should not immediately think of moral perfection necessarily or religious qualities about God. Rather, it speaks of God's position in the cosmos, his relationship to all other beings in the cosmos. God is absolutely distinct 
from all of them and from everything. There is none like him. There is none like him. When he was rebuking Israel through the, the prophet Isaiah because of their idolatry, he said to them, you thought I was altogether like yourselves. He is not like you. He is not like anyone. There is none like him. No angel can compare. He is a creator who is above all his creatures in infinite majesty. Theologians speak of God's holiness as his central and supreme perfection. It is out of his holiness that all his infinite perfections are derived and against which the quality of everything and everyone is judged. Therefore, we must speak of all of God's attributes as holy. All of God's attributes are holy. And they are infinitely holy. They are perfectly holy. His wrath a holy wrath. This is so important. When you reflect back on all of that discussion in Romans 1, 2, and, and early in 3 about the judgment of God, it is a holy judgment. It's justice. It's a holy justice. Our culture constantly complains about injustice. There is a lot of injustice in the world, but not in God. Not in God. His righteousness is a holy righteousness. His grace, so often in, in the Christian world, in the semi-Christian world, or the pretending Christian world, grace in the eyes of God is unholy. But God's grace is a holy grace. His forgiveness is a holy forgiveness. And his love is a holy love. Therefore, it is proper to say that God is infinite in all of his holy perfections. Now, I said this is not primarily about his moral goodness. But it is it's hard to even state. It's hard to put in words. This is a moral goodness that transcends everything, any kind of standard made by man or angel. No unholy thing can exist in God's presence infinitely. Before the throne of God, it must be either cast away from God or reconciled to God. Did you hear that? Any unholy thing that comes into the presence of God must be either cast away from God. In a sense, some of you who are more theological are saying, ah, you could go deeper. Let's just continue. No matter who it is or what it is, there's only two options. You come into the presence of God, you will either, if you are unholy, you will either be cast away from God or you will be reconciled to God. 
You remember the scene in Isaiah 6 where the prophet was unexpectedly brought into the very temple of the Lord and when he stepped into the temple proper he unexpectedly to say the least he came face to face with a scene that absolutely terrified him. In the temple in the temple, God sat on his glorious throne. The king of the cosmos was suddenly there. The seraphim were over his head on either side. They had two wings that covered their feet. They had two wings that covered their body. They had wings that cover their face. And they had wings by which they flew. And the, fountain, the foundations of the threshold, while these angelic beings were flapping their wings, the threshold began to shout at the voice of him who called out. And the voice of him calling out at this point is one of the seraphim and maybe all of them. And the house began filling with smoke, a picture of the Shekinah glory of God, who always appeared as the Shekinah, either as fire or as smoke. And the smoke began filling the temple. And before that throne, as these men, these, these angelic beings were flapping their wings, they were also calling out, Holy, holy, holy. This is who our God is. Now pay attention to what happens next. Isaiah the prophet, arguably the most godly man in Israel at the time, looked at this scene before him for half a second, probably, and instantly fell on his face, crying out, Woe is me! I am undone, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, and my eyes, if only for a second, my eyes have seen the holy. The term woe here, he says, woe is me. This is the vocabulary of cursing. And I mean cursing as in the kind of curses that God promised would come upon them, come upon Israel, if they ever turned their backs on him for idols. Woe is me. He's pronouncing curses upon himself. Why? Because he's just seen the Holy One. Why? Because he knows he's a sinful man. And he may have loved God all his life and served God all his life, but he had never seen God. And we're repeatedly told in the Bible that if you see God, you die. No one dared look at him. You remember when Moses was on the mountain and God was saying, listen, I want you to take my people. I want you to go into Israel and and call my people out, bring them here. And Moses didn't want to do it. 
And so Moses said, I'll only go if you go with me. I'll only go if you go with me. And he's standing there in front of the Lord. He doesn't, it's a strange sight because the bush was burning and it wasn't, it was on fire, but it wasn't being consumed. And just like then, so now, in Isaiah, the prophet sees the Lord and falls down on his face. I mean, think about this. When an angel appeared, what did people tend to do? They threw themselves down on the ground. What Isaiah saw that day was God himself. And honestly, Isaiah thought that he was, he was about to be cast out of the presence of God. In judgment, hey, what else could you think? I don't belong here. I don't belong here. How did I get here? But no, look at the next verse, Isaiah 6, 6 through 9. I think it noteworthy to observe here that it, at this point, God has said nothing. God hasn't said anything to Isaiah. He's just there. The angels or the seraphim are crying out, holy, holy, holy. And God is unmoved. He doesn't say anything condemning. He doesn't say anything encouraging. He's just there. And Isaiah finds himself in his presence. And he thinks he's going to die. The scriptures tell us that the Lord dwells in unapproachable light. He is transcendent. He is above all things in an infinite manner. We're not talking miles. We're talking about things that we can't even describe. It wasn't the, the words of God that terrified Isaiah. It was merely the presence of God that caused him to feel undone. You know what undone means? He felt like he was coming apart. I am undone. And just as Isaiah thought his life was lost, we read, then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth with it and said, Behold, listen to this. Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away. And your sin is atoned for. It is forgiven. You see the contrast here? We've got the holy on that side of the room. We've got grace on this side of the room. And yet the grace finds its source in the holy. And we should fear. What happened here? The unholy prophet thought he was going to die and be judged by the holy. But instead he was graciously reconciled to him by grace. So what we see in Romans 1 through 3 is God's 
It's God's messenger, the Apostle Paul, warning unholy Gentiles first and then Jews of the danger they are in by virtue of the fact that one day they will find themselves standing before the judgment of the holy God. John Calvin once said, Men are never duly touched and impressed with the conviction of their insignificance until they have contrasted themselves with the majesty of God. If your sin does not bother you, you don't know God. Who is this God who justifies? He is a holy God. And I probably should have done a three-part series just on the holiness of God. And if we knew nothing more about him than that he is holy, he should cause us to tremble in worship. You know what? When we sing here, we sing about the gospel. We sing with joy. We love the joyful texts. We love Philippians. Some of the Psalms especially. So encouraging. God doesn't always present himself like that. And holy affections are not always joyful affections. Holy affections are sometimes broken-hearted affections. In fact, Jonathan Edwards says all holy affections are broken-hearted affections. These are affections we need to cultivate. Not just a love of God, not just a delight in God, but a fear of God. Fear of the Lord is the beginning of what? Of wisdom. You want to know why there's such a lack of wisdom, even in the Christian church these days, why there's a lack of discernment? It's because we've made God in our own image, and we expect him to do as we please. And so who is this God? Who is this God? Well, he is a holy God. Second, he's a faithful God. He's a faithful God. And by the way, all of these other perfections, all of these other attributes of God are rooted in the holiness of God. And you're going to hear me repeat that again and again. And this is where we take our first step into the text for this morning. Look with me at verse 21 there in Romans 3 where Paul writes, But now the righteousness of God has been manifest apart from the law, Though the law and the prophets bear witness about it. What do the law and the prophets bear witness about? About the righteousness that God provides. The righteousness whose origin is God. Observe with me now that, that Paul is teaching us that God's righteousness for salvation is not built upon the Old Testament. It's not grounded in the Old Testament in the sense that the Old Testament is the means by which one is saved, but rather that the Old Testament is always borne witness about justification by faith alone. It is always borne witness about the true gospel. And I say the Old Testament bears witness because in Paul's day, the phrase law and prophets meant the Old Testament, not just the Torah but the Old Testament, as we saw last time. So Paul is saying, the gospel I preach, namely, that sinners are declared righteous by God apart from the law, is not a new idea. It's not a new teaching. 
It's all over the Old Testament because it has always been what God had promised. It had always been what God had promised. The law and the prophets, the Old Testament, frequently declared the promise of the coming Messiah who would provide the righteousness that sinners so desperately need to be made right with God. So let's take a moment to remember what Paul wrote at the very beginning of his letter. So this, this puts us like 18 messages back, maybe more. And so here's what Paul said at the beginning. Now, I want you to see this as a theme of the Apostle Paul, and not just the Apostle Paul, but the other apostles as well. And Stephen, Stephen was the first, always going back to justify, justify the gospel of Jesus Christ by pointing to statements in the Old Testament. And so here's how Paul starts his letter, just to remind you. The first words of Romans chapter 1. Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through the prophets in the Holy Scriptures. Does that surprise you? I remember the first time I saw this, and I thought, yeah, that surprises me. That is wonderful. This is not like a, a break from the previous revelation of God. It is all, it's, there's continuity here. God has always been teaching and talking about this gospel, this savior, this justification that would come. And so Paul's saying, the gospel I preach, namely that sinners are declared righteous apart from the law, is nothing new. It's nothing new. And then we can keep going. You see, beloved, Paul wants us. He wants us to discover these things. And he wants us to discover them to be a ballast, a strong, heavy ballast in our ship of the gospel. Paul wants us, and especially the Jews, to know that this gospel did not suddenly appear sometime immediately after Paul says he had a vision of Jesus Christ. He wants them to know that this gospel is a lot older. It's been around for a long time. The gospel was introduced, hinted at, explained, and described in many ways throughout the Old Testament, beginning all the way back in Genesis. It was there in Genesis 3 where after man and his wife sinned and were about to be cast out of the garden, God promised. You remember that whole conversation he had with Adam and Eve and the serpent. And he made a promise. Okay, remember, we're talking about the faithful God. He made a promise. And what was the promise? That one day, a son of Eve would crush the serpent's head. And the serpent would bruise his heel or injure his heel. Again, we can look at Romans 1.17, where Paul once again writes... For in it, that is, in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Now, whenever we see the phrase, for it is written, I've mentioned this several times in the study so far, whenever you see the words, it is written, you've got to think Old Testament. This was, had to be written in the Old Testament. In this case, Paul's quoting Habakkuk 2.4. He's reaching into the Old Testament. 
More specifically, the doctrine of justification by faith finds its origin not in in, in, in the New Testament alone, not in the major prophets in the Old Testament, not in Deuteronomy, not the, the second giving of the law in, in Deuteronomy or in Exodus 20, the first giving of the law. Rather, we find it in, in Genesis long before, listen carefully, we find it long before God gave Israel his law. God was already promising before the law was ever written. In Genesis 15, 6, this is where God was making a promise to Abraham that he would give Abraham and Sarah a son, even in their old age. And the text says, Then he, that is Abraham, believed in the Lord, and he, Yahweh, reckoned it to him as, what's the next word? Righteousness. So let me break that down, just or compress it. Abraham believed his faith, and God counted it as righteousness. He counted or declared Abraham righteous, not on the basis of the law, because the law hadn't yet been written, but on the basis of faith. This is an old gospel. This is an ancient gospel. And you know, beloved, this is, this is the way it worked out. The main point here is that throughout the Old Testament, God promised that he would provide the righteousness that sinners desperately need apart from the law and by faith alone. And my dear friends, let it be known today that God is always faithful to his promises. Arthur Pink, in his magnificent little book, The Attributes of God, quotes Psalm 36, verse 5, in which he says, Your steadfastness, your steadfast love, O Lord, extends to the heavens, your faithfulness to the clouds. It's as if he's saying, because this is a parallelism, He's saying, your, your steadfast love, O Lord, is higher than I can imagine. And your faithfulness is higher than I can imagine. And then he writes, far above all finite, uh, finite comprehension is the unchanging faithfulness of God. Everything about God is great and vast and incomparable. He never forgets. He never fails. He never falters. He never, he never forfeits his word. To every declaration of promise or prophecy, the Lord has exactly adhered, Pink says. Every engagement of covenant or threatening of judgment, he will make good. For God is not a man that he should lie. Neither the son of man that he should change his mind. And I just want to ask you this morning, have you seen the faith, faithfulness of the Lord? Have you read his promises? Do you read his promises? I know some of you are struggling. I know all of you are struggling in various ways. 
If you're not struggling, then happy you. Praise the Lord. <laughs> uh, the rest of us are with a variety of things. And the one thing that I would encourage you to cultivate as you're struggling is a holy affection in your heart that from the heart trusts his promises. If you've been at Calvary Bible Church for any length of time and you've been sick or injured or diagnosed with something, you have probably been avalanched <laughs> with your brothers and sisters in Christ sending you scripture texts by text or by any means. There's a dear brother, a pastor friend of mine who's really, it's a really critical week this week for him. Things have not gone well in his church. And I ask him how he's doing, and he says, the Lord is faithful. We trust him. And you cultivate in that heart whatever is happening in your life today. Beloved, God is holy. And we should fear him because the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. God is faithful, so we should trust him with whatever it is that's happening in your heart or in your life. And thirdly, God is righteous. But I'm not going to have enough time to cover God's righteousness. And that wasn't my goal this morning. It wasn't to get through all of this material. Sometimes it is, because I feel like I have to. But today, I don't think we do. You know what I think we need to do? We just need to humble ourselves before the Lord and worship him. He is worthy of your worship. He is worthy of your trust. He's worthy of your life. Do you trust him? Do you believe him? Does his word make you tremble even while it is giving you the comfort of his grace? If you don't know the God that I've been describing this morning, then I want to plead with you. Because not only is it true that God has revealed that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. Not only does he reveal that the unrighteous will be cast away from God forever, not only that, not only those threats of judgment, but God is offering you escape. He's offering you salvation. He's offering, along with the threats, he's offering himself to you. Come, all of you who are weary and are heavy burdened, and I will give you rest. Come, come. I'm not asking you to walk an aisle or anything like that. I'm asking you to get your heart flat on the floor before God and plead with him to be merciful to you. And he is promised, so you can believe him, that whoever comes to him will never be cast out. He will receive you. You may not have thought of it like this before, because we're always, I don't know, when I was a kid, I was always taught you've got to accept Jesus into your heart. Listen, Jesus is king. You don't accept him. 
He's got to accept you. The only thing you can do is ask, and he will receive you. Let's pray. Father, there is so much more here for us to learn and to glory in. Praise you, Father, for this opportunity to be here with your people who love you and love your word and who are so kind to one another, so proactive in ministry to one another. I pray, Father, that the love of Christ would be manifest after this service as we minister to one another. I pray, Father, that there would be much prayer after this service. And I know we have other things to do too, but I pray, Father, that you would so move in our hearts that we would be eager to worship you, to confess sin, to plead for your saving grace, and to minister to one another. So would you do that for us, Lord? We would be so grateful, and we thank you in the name of our Savior, Jesus.